As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, thank you for supporting this show. And for those of you who are our patrons, you support all the shows in the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. And if you're one of those people that are not a patron, that's okay. Maybe you can't afford it, but go check us out over at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Maybe you can be a, con a contributor in the future. And for all of, of you who already are, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, we return to the mean streets of Astro City, and one of the heroes has a confession to make. There's a new sheriff in Gotham. There's one less hero in Angel Grove and ride sharing with The Rock. You guys ever notice how much he looks like Dwayne Johnson? Plus, our regular, regular major spoilers, slate of news, deep thoughts, and wacky fun, all brought to you in stereo, maybe, depending on whether you're wearing your headset right. We do that voodoo that you do, but you don't know Steven, and he has all the recording equipment, but, but we do it for you out of love, because the Major Spoilers Podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 837 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. I think we're coming to you in crisp, clear mono. I don't think I released this show in stereo. The crisp full sound of mono. That is right. Uh, no Ashley this week. She has actually started production of a new, uh, well, not a new Shakespeare play, but a new production of a Shakespeare, no, Shakespeare play. Shakespeare wrote a new one. People are talking yeah. about Shakespeare. Yeah, so she's going she's to be in and out. I don't know what her like schedule is for like the next uh, three months or whatever, yeah. five weeks or whatever that she's doing this uh, play. I would mention its name, but uh, it would probably bring a curse upon all of us. Uh, so I will not. Instead, we will just get right to the news. So a couple of news items that we can talk about this week. The Metal Men are returning. Hellblazer enters the Sandman universe and Taika Waititi is going to direct Thor 4. Ooh. Let's spin that Wheel of Destiny and let's see where we land. Man, it's been so long. I don't even remember the Wheel of Destiny. Is Number two. Hellboy enters the Sandman universe this October. This is one of the pre-San Diego Comic-Con announcements and also one that's a little bit surprising. So Hell, what's going to happen? It would be surprising if Hellboy entered the Sandman universe. Oh uh, yeah, Hellblazer. Hellblazer. Sorry, yeah, Hellblazer. So uh, the Sand. So what, what's going to happen is the Sandman universe presents Hellblazer one, which is going to be part of, um, which is going to then kick off a new Hellblazer series set in the Sandman universe. Okay. It's really weird. All right. So, so walk walk me through this. So here it is. Okay. 
Uh, here's what happens. The story begins in a moment originally seen in Gaiman's miniseries, The Books of Magic. John Constantine finds himself haggard, bloody, and dying in an epic magical war, a battle that will soon consume the world. As he lies there, the vision of young Tim Hunter stands above him, the naive youth seeing firsthand what his destiny holds. Horrified, Hunter flees back into the past, and Constantine, Constantine is left behind to die. Now, years later, Constantine emerges, physically unaged, but with all of his memories intact, and yet the world has passed him by. Constantine must now fathom a new world torn apart by the same old political and social woes while attempting to discover how he returned after all this time. But most troubling of all of the rumors are of the uh, new young magician named Tim Hunter, a boy destined to be either the greatest sorcerer of all or the greatest threat to the world. If history is repeating itself, then is it John's role to... Uh, to die all over again, or is John here to stop the cycle and stop Tim Hunter? Stop Tim Hunter. So, Rodrigo. Yes. So Vertigo is gone, right? Yeah, that's that's what that's what I need clarification. <laughs> so, so once upon a time there was this imprint called Vertigo. Yes. Right? Uh huh. Where and we saw books of magic and Sandman yeah. and Hellblazer magic, and Swamp Sandman, Thing. Hellblazer, Swamp yeah. Thing. Swamp Thing. Bunch Animal of other Man. Stuff. Yeah. Doom Patrol. New Deadwardians, or what was that called? I don't know. I'm probably thinking of something else. Um, no, it was actually a thing. Okay. So, um, yeah, and there was kind of, it kind of had, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of an image comics thing going where if, if Neil Gaiman was writing Sandman and he wanted a character from one of the other Vertigo things or even from the rest of the DC universe, he could put it in Sandman. Um, and it kind of didn't affect other things, right? Same in, the thing with in the Vertigo universe, that was one of the things that was most interesting. And one of the things that, and one of the reasons why I think the House of Vertigo ultimately collapsed is that there was no crossover. There was not supposed to be crossover between uh, the Vertigo okay. universe, which were adult uh. titles. I know, Matthew, there are going to be exceptions. But, so that's a, but then but that's more a, recently... That was a recent mandate, right? That hasn't no, that was, always been the case. I don't think it's always been the case, but they really tried to shy away from it, especially as some of the titles became more mature. But then there was this demand uh, with the new 52 Rebirth stuff right, right. that they wanted to have. Oh, could, wouldn't it be great if we could have John Constantine over here in this Batman story or have Swamp Thing back and doing things with uh, the Green and the rest of the, the Justice League? And so they started pulling those characters away. And I think that was where the first cracks in the House of Vertigo started to appear. Okay. So so then we I, I guess there the, the any amount of time that we spent mourning the end of Vertigo is pointless because really just the the name Vertigo went away. Yes. All of those properties are still in play. And yes. Kind of up in the air and doing their own thing. Right. right. So, so right so now Vertigo, they're, they're saying, okay, so we've decided now that the Sandman is actually its own universe, even though if you read Sandman, it never has been uh, much to my chagrin. Um, but, but so now uh, they're going to have John interact maybe with the endless for a little bit before he like, splits off to his own story. Yeah, so the the thing that they the thing that happened in this whole Vertigo shutdown is is Vertigo as the imprint is gone and any of the titles that are going to be continuing or would have continued under Vertigo are now part of DC Black Label, the more adult stuff. Now, I don't think Sandman Universe is part of of the Black Label. That may still be part of just um regular DC. I mean, I'm looking if this is a cover here, yeah, it's it not branded. 
it doesn't. No, it's not. I mean, it just has Sandman Universe. Uh, yeah. But also, uh, DC Black Label will also feature what they call, and I'm, I'm not really a big fan of this, but I understand it, pop-up imprints, little short-run imprints like the Young Animals and the, I'm right. guessing maybe Sandman Universe is a pop-up imprint in this as well. So, you know... Somebody said, somebody mandated, this is all, com- comics are too confusing. Uh, I don't, I just want to know which one is okay for my kids to read. So DC had to go in and say, okay, we got to collapse these down into three things. DC Kids, they DC did, Comics, and DC Black Label. Uh, some, somebody, I am gar- I guarantee you someone at AT&T made the mandate and that's how it happened. That's definitely a possibility. I think part of the problem with uh, Vertigo that we don't really hear so much about is Vertigo Lost had- two editors. Well, Vertigo lost their big editors, but more importantly, Vertigo had slightly better creative deals and creator uh, oh, creator contracts stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. than you did with the DC stuff. And so even if you were working on a pro, uh, something that actually started within the DC universe, what do you call those? A property that started within the DC universe, you had slightly better creator contracts under Vertigo till about 2010. So I would actually say that the, the death of the House of Vertigo started before the New 52. I feel uh-huh. like that New 52 thing was really kind of the last ditch and to the point where those foundations crumbled. But more importantly, the separation was never solid. They didn't just one yeah. day say, you can't have these characters anymore. It just sort of happened mm-hmm. to the point where Swamp Thing and Animal Man, when they showed up in the DC universe occasionally people would be really confused and they actually did treat it very much like a separate continuity for a while, probably from about 95 to maybe the mid to 2000. I want to say like 2008 or so. But by that time they had also lost all of the big titles that Mm -hmm. made it successful. They had lost, you know, that Transmetropolitan ended, Sandman ended. All of these books. Garth Ennis had moved on to someplace else. I mean, wasn't the boys, the boys was over at, uh, Vertigo no. until DC was like, whoa, this is too hot for us. No, the boys started at Wildstorm. Oh, Wildstorm. Okay. Before DC yeah. bought them. Yeah. But if you, and if you look at, you know, Alan Moore stopped doing comics. Mm-hmm. Warren Ellis went on to create her own stuff. Garth Ennis went on to create her own stuff. Steve Dillon passed away. All of these things happened. And I feel like the end of Vertigo was really more of the just the all of a sudden they're deciding okay we're not going to do this anymore we've got this sign that's sort of hanging over our abandoned plates basically we haven't really put a whole lot of food on these plates in the last five years anyway basically they were the wizard shazam at the rock of eternity with with the uh with the with a big stone hanging from the from the thread last thread and that's exactly what happened neil gaiman came back and said sandman uh, it's S for Solomon, A for Atlas, N for Nancy Pelosi, D for David Cross, uh, M for me, A for another Atlas from a different reality, and N for Neil Gaiman. All came together, and that rock fell and crushed Vertigo, and that is why Freddie Freeman is no longer Shazam. I give him five weeks. Uh, okay, now that you guys have explained that, it all makes sense. Right? I mean, it, it's clear as the nose on your face. So but essentially, think, hey, hey, Matthew, we're getting a new Hellblazer series. Aren't you excited? I kind of am, yeah. Uh, the one thing that I am bothered by yeah. is the fact that, as oh. with the Marvel Miracle Man revival a couple of years ago, there's a lot of dancing around the original writer and this, all of this stuff seems to be saying, hey, Neil Gaiman's back on the character that he made famous. 
And I'm like, no, he F word didn't. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not bitter. I don't think they're, I don't think they're trying to say that Neil Gaiman made John Yeah, Constantine. but they're also, you know, trying to are, not say Alan Moore. Are, are people real hot on the books of magic? I kind of feel like out of all of, of magic, the, all of the big, like, cause they rebooted books of magic just not too long ago. Books of Magic is one of those properties that keeps coming back, and I know that the original trade paperback still sells pretty well. Yeah, and and Matthew and I just reviewed like the first issue of the new Books of Magic like six months ago or something like that on Dueling Review. Well, they keep bringing it back because J.K. Rowling made $11 million writing the Books of Magic, and so why not get some of that cash back to DC? Well, technically, I mean... Technically, Warner Brothers is making all of the J.K. Rowling ah, monies from from the books ah, of magic. You get it from both synergy. Sides. Yeah, dip your dip your beaks. Yeah, it's it's like uh, it's a really nice uh, Hogwarts you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. I don't know what any of that meant, but I will say this: Yeah, I am kind of excited for more Hellblazer, and I'm always excited for adult Hellblazer because the thing about Hellblazer. Other than the fact that no one will ever pronounce John Constantine's name correctly anymore. And I, for that, I have to blame Keanu Reeves. I, I feel like Hellblazer done with a weirdo adult spin and the thought process of this is actually aimed at, you know, the grown-up titles. Not that everything should be, certainly not that everything should be aimed at me. But a book that's actually aimed at grown-ups can do stuff that other titles couldn't. And if you've read some of those old Hellblazer stories from way, way back in the mid-90s. There's a lot of stuff there that really created the modern storytelling of comics. A lot of the decompression, a lot of the big craziness, a lot of the huge moments where, oh yeah, you just beat the devil, you gave him the finger, and now he's going to explode. A lot of what we see in not just modern comics, but modern superhero movies and you know modern movies of all stripes kind of rolls out of what Vertigo set down. A lot of the guidelines that they had put in place that weren't actually even guidelines, just more of a, here's an example of something really wacky that you can do when you have support and you have weird people writing weird things for weird audiences. And so really, uh, modern culture is the fault of Vertigo. $10 says we still see Constantine uh, hanging around with the uh, Justice League Dark and the two oh, universes sorry. are basically all together. There you go. You know what? I'm just fascinated that John is literally the only person left in pop culture who is still allowed to smoke. There you go. Yeah. And I want to know how long that's going to last because it can't go on forever. Listeners, head over to our Discord server and hang out with some like-minded people and talk about the news of the week or the news of the day or even the latest episode of the Major Spoilers podcast. Link to the Discord in the show notes. Why don't we do some reviews really quick? And Matthew, please, can you tell me what is the year of the villain over at DC Comics? Why, why, why is Lex Luthor fine, you know, running around as president and um, uh, Bane is in charge of, of, uh, uh, of Batman City? No. I can't tell you that. You can't or you I won't? actually don't know. Okay. So Batman 75, I figured was, hey, we've only got a few more is uh, issues of this Tom King run of Batman. Why don't I jump into this? Also, 75 should be a good jumping on point. I, uh, wow. I, I mean, here is the Riddler and the Joker as uh, Joe Friday and, uh, uh, and his partner. 
um, doing the cop thing, keeping keeping the city of, of uh, Gotham safe, tracking down Two-Face. Bane's in charge of the city. The heroes are the villains. And Bane is working out an agreement with uh, President Luthor to wall up the city and declare it its own little nation, uh, you know, that nobody can go into or out of. And all the while, Bruce is wandering around in Tibetan or something. I mean, I found it super fascinating. And also, also um, Thomas Wayne from the uh, from the Flashpoint universe is back as as Batman, Batman running around in the city, running around with Gotham Girl as his sidekick. And it's weird. That's all I can say. I, I haven't read 75 issues of of Tom King's Batman run. I have not uh, been keeping up in, in Batman. I Flash is probably the only thing that I've been most recently uh, keeping up with. But I think this is all part of the year of the villain. And I can't tell if this is a different universe that all of this is taking place in, if this is a different timeline. The, the Psycho Pirate does show up in this issue, so I wonder if he's not behind some of this flip-flop of, uh, of characters and their roles. I know that Bane and Thomas Wayne were teaming up to crack Batman um, in previous issues. But this was just a real head turner and a real head scratcher. And if you're someone that's coming in as a first time reader of this series. You're going to be confused as to what's going on. I think you need maybe two issues or three issues. There's certainly not a previously in section in this comic. So that kind of is confusing as well. All that being said, the Tony S. Daniel art is fantastic. Tom King's writing is really, really good. I mean, just the the Joker Riddler team up as they're trying to track down Two-Face in this issue is fantastic. The fact that you think that they're talking to Commissioner Gordon and they're not talking to a Commissioner Gordon, Gordon, they're talking to someone else. The weird, the weirdness that is going on in this issue where essentially Gotham Girl is dressed up as Batgirl, but she's got all the powers of Superman is, you know, fascinating as she's trying to take down Killer Croc and some of these others. Seeing the villains in a totally different way is is fascinating. And I like the writing that Tom King has put into this issue. I love the art that Tony Daniel has done in this issue. I just wish I knew what was going on. And I think that's the biggest failure. I want to give this, I'm going to give this four out of five slices of meatloaf. Batman 75 comes out this week, but this is, I will tell people this right now. This is not new reader friendly. And if you haven't if you haven't picked up Batman in 10 issues, you're probably going to be just as confused as I am. That being said, it's a solid issue. I mean, that's one of the nice things that we can look at is how does it stand on its writing? How does it stand on its art? How does it stand as a story? And from that point, it's it's really kind of cool. But I just don't know what's going on. The one thing that confuses or the one thing that concerns me is at one point in the conversation between Bane and Luthor, which we never see either one in the issue. They mention a crisis is coming. And I, I have concerns about that, especially when the Psycho Pirates shows up. I have concerns that we are in another um, universe. I have concerns that the, uh, the Black, uh, the, what is it, the, uh, the Dark Knight universe is going to be playing a bigger role as this uh, Year of the Villains continues. We know that there's a new Batman Superman series that is, that is coming up um, following the end of, or I think it's maybe in the next week or two, following the end of the Batman who laughs storyline. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I 
kept wanting to read more of this story. But it unfortunately ended after 22 pages or whatever it is, 20 pages. But it's still four out of five slices of meatloaf good. If you're up on Batman, I think you'll enjoy it. If you're not, I think you're just going to scratch your head, but certainly look at the pretty pictures and read it time and time and time again. That's Batman number 75 out this week from DC Comics. Oh, I want to know, Rodrigo. This is one of those movies. This is a 20th Century Fox movie. Yeah. This is one that we were talking about in the pre-show when we talk about uh, what's going on. Actually, we spent a lot of the pre-show this week talking about the San Diego Comic-Con, but a lot of things relating to conventions and, you know, mergers and buyouts and 20th Century Fox um, or maybe Disney getting stuck with a lot of maybe not so good movies and the the Stubber, or is it Stuber? Stuber. Stuber. The Stuber image is the one that they use as the headline image for that article. So it makes me wonder. Classic. If this is a good movie or not. So please fill us in. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I made the mistake of looking up literally any information about this movie. And it's getting a lot of, uh, uh, to be kind, to say that it's getting mixed reviews that would be kind. I don't think it's getting very good reviews, mm. but I don't understand why. Um, Stuber is a movie that uh, just came out, came out a couple, a few days ago. And um, it stars... Uh, Kumail Nanjiani and Dave Bautista as a base uh, as a buddy cop, odd couple. Um, uh, uh, Kumail plays a an Uber driver named Stu, hence the the titular Stuber. Oh, I get it. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, Dave Bautista plays a no nonsense, uh, like begging for a lawsuit type cop who has to, who, who, who has, you know, a, a serious chip on his shoulder, a- anything you'd expect, right? His, his partner was killed and now he has to hunt down the person that did it. Um, it's kind of standard stuff. Um, oh, is this, Hey, what was that? What was that? Uh, was it taxi driver? What? No, not, um, it was the one that had two, two, seven, no, it was with 227 and I think, um, gosh. You go- Latifah and Jimmy Fallon. It's yes. called Taxi. Taxi, yeah. that's what it is, yeah. Terrible movie. Is Terrible. it kind of the same so, storyline for that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it is Taxi, it is Ride Along, it is, um, you know, Rush Hour. Mm. It is Urban um, Cowboy. Yeah, so it's all of these, uh, th- the 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 central engine of this movie is something that we've seen a lot. Um, I mean, you could argue it's Lethal Weapon, um, but uh, I think that Stuber does capture that old Rush Hour magic, and it does capture that old Lethal Weapon magic. Um, not on the strength of its premise. Its premise is the same movie that they remake every 10 years or so, mm-hmm. um, maybe less, but on the caliber of both the writing, like basically the comedy and the performances, because uh, Kumail Nanjiani is very funny. His character is very funny. Um, and De Bautista is hilarious. So their chemistry is great and all of the situations that they get themselves in which are you know slightly different from other situations there's a um 
you know, they end up at a, at a like a veterinarian's. They end up in like an art gallery. So it's like, you know, there's all these like action set pieces as well as a lot of comedy to, to go with it. And probably most importantly is that it, it, it always has that thing that in and of itself is also a, a stock aspect of this, which is that both characters that are diametrically opposed, come together and learn something from each other. Um, but in this movie, it feels earnest, right? It feels earned where at the end of everything, the characters come together and appreciate each other, mm-hmm. even though they are very, very different people. Um, and again, that's what these movies go for. That's part of that stock plot. But so few movies actually manage to pull it off to where you actually feel like these characters, does, like where the movie deserves to make you feel that way. But I think this movie pulls it off. I'm giving it four slices of meatloaf. I laughed the whole way through. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of uh, really funny interactions between the two of them. They both, like, a lot of the stuff in the trailer is, like, uh, Bautista's character, like, making fun of Stu. But Stu gets some great licks in. As far as the as far as the jokes, um, there's a scene at a strip club that I'm telling you, I'm not someone who is like, I bet the scene at a strip club is going to be hilarious. I was kind of rolling my eyes. There's a scene at a strip club that is genuinely both heartwarming and kind of disturbing and 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 hilarious. So I I was really happy with this movie. It's the sort of thing where I might actually go see it again, and they probably need me to because I don't think it's doing that well <laughs> in the box office. All so right. I might just go do that. All right, Stuber, it's out now from uh, Disney from 20th Century Fox. I don't know what it's what it, how it's called now, but uh, who knows? Did did they have a title screen title card at the beginning that that said who it was? I don't remember. I okay. don't remember they what. They probably had like nine of them every movie. I'm I'm like sure 15. it was Fox because this is kind of a thing where it was either the inertia or the fact that, uh, you know, Bautista is tied to Guardians of the Galaxy and they were not going to not release his movie. Right. Um, But that doesn't mean that they have to put their name on it. That's true. That is true. Uh, Matthew, last week, Studios released uh, Google Power Rangers. Is this uh, tied into Shattered Grid, or is this kicked off the new Shattered Grid follow-up? Because I know you talked about another... I think you talked about Mighty Morphin Power Rangers like two weeks ago. Yep, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and GoGo Power Rangers are now in a new reality after Shattered Grid, which is great, because from the very beginning, I have said to myself in the back of my head, that little voice that says, continuity is important. Continuity is important. It's like, how many stories can they implant into this world when we've seen the first six seasons of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? And the answer is uh, Infinity, because they've rebooted the universe. In a way, that's good, because in the previous Boom Studio stories, we saw the beginning scene of this issue, the first date between Kim and Tommy, and we saw it end differently with Tommy being executed in an alley. Here, Mm. it ends with a big damn kiss, which I think is wonderful. And this is my favorite part of the whole issue, and I'm going to tell you this, and you're going to go, ah, you know how Power Rangers tend to wear color-coded clothing even Aww. out of their uniforms? Aw. Not up. yet. Oh, sorry. Yes, uh, they do. 
Okay. Once Kim and Tommy are a couple, she's wearing a pink shirt with a green jacket, and he's wearing a green shirt with a pink backpack. Cute. They're couples. It's adorable. However, this story takes place after the universe rebooted, and it's taking place right after Lord Zed arrived, which, uh, for those of you paying attention, was 1994, season two of Mighty Morph Power Rangers. Uh, Tommy is losing his powers, as he did. And Zed is, ooh, evil. But everything else is different. And the things that are different are kind of fascinating. And all of these characters, this is all updated in a modern continuity. So they're telling these stories, but not retelling these stories. And yet it all takes place in the now, whenever the now is. They've been doing it for like five years now. So the now keeps moving on. But most of this issue takes place several months after that first date. And ends with Tommy deciding that he's going to go off and hang out in his uncle's cabin for a week or two weeks or a couple of months until he gets his act together because he's no longer got any superpowers and it's freaking him out. Meanwhile, Jason, the leader of the Power Rangers, is visited by a strange creature from somewhere who says, I helped you rebuild the universe and now you have to help me save it. Is it Seven Zark Seven? It is not Seven Zark Seven. It'd be great if it was Seven Sark Seven. However, Battle of the Planets is not the same as Power Rangers. Are you sure? We've, we've talked about this. <laughs> Battle of the Planets and Power Rangers both have an antecedent. You see, they, well, technically, I guess Battle of the Planets. Gotcha, man. You inspired Battle of the Planets, and we brought you America as an adaptation. Whereas uh, Power this is Rangers, your, this is your fault, Stephen. I know. Power it, Rangers. It'll all be edited out. Don't worry. <laughs> you know what? That's just me. <laughs> Season 16 of Super Sentai, which was not brought to America, was Jetman, which was, in fact, Battle of the Planets done in Super Sentai style. But here's the deal. This is a really good story. It has a little bit of romance. It has a little bit of action. It has the things that we remember from Power Rangers without remembering that those super early Power Ranger stories were really goofy and tongue-in-cheek and aimed at a much younger audience than they eventually got. So the first two seasons feels like they're aiming at eight to 10 year olds. And then they're like, oh, we're getting old people too. Let's call it 12 to 15 year olds now. And I feel like the series is better aimed at 12 to 15 year olds. I myself am 48, but go, go power Rangers. Number 21 is interesting on a couple of levels. Even if you have no idea what the power Rangers were like in the 1990s and don't be feel bad. If you don't, a lot of you weren't born yet. This book tells you what you need to know and lets you know when something is weird and different and strange and how that's going to affect the plot going forward. My real love is the art. This is a different art team. Uh, Francesco Mortarino is -hmm. handling the art now. And it's really, really good. And one thing that the Boom Studios gets exactly right and has from the very beginning is, you know what's you got to draw perfectly. What you got to draw right about the Power Rangers? Those helmets. Those helmets got to look exactly right. And every single page of helmets are just gorgeous. Everything else on top of that is gravy, but it's some lovely gravy. Three and a half slices of meatloaf, well above average for your uh, go-go Power Rangers. I believe this series may be ending as the new Power Rangers thing goes on. But if it goes where I hope it's going, we may get a really cool blow them up and everything, you know, goes weird ending. And I'm totally down for that. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what's coming next for the. Actually, I do know what's coming next for the Power Rangers. 
Do you? Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are teaming up for a new miniseries over at Boom Studios, kicking off in December of this year. You know, they've Um, teamed up before. Uh, have they? I, I didn't know if they had teamed yeah. up before or not, but uh, this is this is definitely going to be interesting. Over with Ninja Turtles, the next mutation. Oh no! This is this is definitely this is definitely this version, this incarnation of the Power Rangers, because uh, yeah. Tommy Oliver, aka the Mighty Morphin Green Ranger, soon discovers he's joined forces with the villainous Shredder and the Foot Clan. The Shredder. As the Rangers are are sent reeling by his betrayal, they're confronted by another frenemy. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Can these heroes find a way to work together to defeat the bad guys and save the world from total destruction? Oh, I wonder if uh, the Ninja or if the Ninja Turtles are going to get their own kind of Zords or anything. You know what I'm waiting for? That'd be cool. Donatello and Billy out nerding each other. I'm sure it's going to be in there. Look for it. Look for it in December, Matthew. The guys in the blue mask just sitting there and everybody's like, what are they talking about? I don't know, but it's entertaining. That is one of the, uh, that's one of the upcoming things we can look forward to in the coming months right here at Major Spoilers. And you can help keep Major Spoilers going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Major Spoilers. Don't know what the Patreon is about? Heck, just take a moment right now. It'll take you like two minutes to head over to patreon.com slash Major Spoilers. See what we're trying to do. See all of our goals. See all of the bonus stuff. And I mean, you get a bonus stuff, a bunch of bonus stuff for as little as $5 per month. Ah, let's see. Um, Astro City. Sorry. Confession time. The Confessor and the Alter Boy sidekick. Who wants to give us a rundown of the uh, kind of overview of the story in this? Matthew, why don't you, why don't you run it down? Why don't you run down the story here? All right, I will. Uh, Confessions, which I think, is this the third trade paperback or the second? I I think it's the second volume. Yeah, I think it's only the second. Cool. All right. Confessions starts with a bus coming to Astro City and a young man on that bus who's coming to the big city to find out he's going to find himself. And Brian Kinney has big dreams and he's not coming to Astro City to become famous on the stage or to learn how to sing. He wants to be a superhero. And so he comes to the city and he ends up getting a job as a busboy at a place where the superheroes hang out in the hopes that a superhero will take him on as their sidekick and make him famous. And that totally happens. And it sucks in all the ways that he didn't expect. And there's a guy with a lion's head and the ending is completely unexpected and also some aliens and a huge twist. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, sure. (laughs) Sure. That's uh, let's let's spend a lot of time there on the on the first two pages of the issue and then wrap every <laughs> all the other hundred and ninety two pages up in about one sentence. You know, um, what? you know, what's amazing about this? What's you know, that? what's amazing about this issue that I really hadn't thought the first time when I read it is this is an incredibly religious uh, uh, story, not just because the confessor and the altar boy are, you know, uh, the confessor used to be a priest and everything, but all because of the amount of faith that this story talks about uh here you have the uh what are they called the uh the The crossbreed the crossbreed right uh referred to by the public occasionally as the jesus freaks yeah i mean they're you i mean and they're kind of painted that way right uh but you know it's their faith that helps them carry on through the alien invasion it's their faith that helps the confessor uh it's the confessor's faith that helps him reveal um, you know, the alien invasion, it's, it's altar boys, uh, faith 
even though it's not really set up as to what religion he background he came from, um, you know, there is a lot of whether people know it or not in the underlying message. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of God talk in this and not just because of who the characters are. There is a lot, especially in the epilogue where the hangman comes and talks to some of these comes and talks to the characters. I, I just found that very, very surprising. And I don't know if you guys saw that same, um, you know, religious allegory going on through throughout the or conversation that was going on throughout the, uh, the, the, the series. Yeah. And I, that's one of the things that really struck me when it originally came out. Cause this came out in like 1996 mm-hmm. at the height of big, dumb comics. I mean, this is, this is a, the era that gave us the bad girl trend. And a lot of the bad girl trend was like, how big can you make their breasts before they literally split in two? So going to the stands and reading a book that's talking about human nature and faith and the tendency to, you know, to build something up as an idol and say, this is an awesome, perfect thing. And then as soon as, you know, that idol has the metaphorical feet of clay to just rip it down and smash it, is really fascinating. And of course, I felt like it had a lot of parallels to the modern cancel culture, in good and bad, uh, to the point where as soon as the heroes seem to have something that even just don't understand, not necessarily something nefarious, but something that doesn't oh, seem to be yeah. clear. I wouldn't say that we're all... like, oh, we're going to we're going to crush them. We're going to tear them down. They all must be locked up and I guess away. I, I can see where you're coming from from cancel culture. But I think this is more again. 30 years ahead of its time, uh, really talking about current political discourse too. Well, I, I think it goes, it goes to show that there really is no such thing as quote unquote modern cancel culture. Right. This is just how people have always been. Right, right. Right. It's, you know, people get into these things where they, they love something and then they love to hate it. And mm-hmm. then the moment that that thing gives them an opportunity they just want to sink it right it's like we see it we've always seen it with celebrities you know mm-hmm. at at the time when this was being put out uh probably britney spears was a big deal yes. and it's like everybody loved to hate britney spears and eventually yes. the poor girl had a breakdown over it yes you know? Uh, and you know that's that's fascinating because i also i think it was also in this last week when i was reading this uh this volume I was also thinking a lot about uh, Taylor Swift and how people did the same thing to her. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it's okay to, to hold people to a certain standards. It's okay to um, talk about whether somebody's problematic or not. All that mm-hmm. stuff is fine. As, yeah. But certainly the internet nowadays just makes everything just so much faster. Right. Right. And, and amplifies it louder yeah. than it might have been even in 1994. Yep. But yeah, and the thing that I really enjoy about this and the hard part, I think, as a creator is that they balance a lot of that Judeo-Christian iconography and discussion of faith with uh, the tradition of Shadow Hill, where all of Mm -hmm. the magic and superstition that you know that all of us have heard in every horror movie and every comic book is 100% true. And, you know, there are things that go bump in the night and monsters and vampires and creatures and all of this stuff. And yet it's still balanced in a world where there's also a massive cathedral in the middle of the city. It's really going to be difficult as a creator to take something that has so many far out elements 
and balance it and still have it feel real and grounded and modern. And well, when. Yeah, I was going to say, even when you're talking, even when this story is set around religion, at no point did it feel like uh, Busick is. Um, preaching. N- well, yes. Number one, it, nothing in this issue feels like there's preaching going on. And also, uh, it doesn't feel like uh, you're being talked down to at all. But right. yet the discussion of what faith really means to different people just carries through throughout in a most brilliant uh, subtext way, meta way, that I think most readers would not get in the first reading. It it doesn't, I don't want to say take sides, but I guess I kind of do. It doesn't take sides and say religion is the only possible truth. And it also right, doesn't right. say that if you're not, you know, if you are religious, that you're foolish, which well, we and have that, seen in, in modern stories. Sure. You know, and this actually takes it and presents it, I think, and says, you know, this is what the character feels. This is how the confessor responds. I mean, the confessor came to what was then, you know, Wayland Falls to spread his faith and do good things. And then something bad happened to him. And that's the big twist of the story that we don't find out until halfway through. Right. And I like the fact that you, you said that, Matthew, where everything is true, the horror things that you know are true, the aliens are true. And yes, this idea of a god or God, depending gods, depending on which uh, faith that you believe in inside Astro City, all that stuff mm-hmm. is real and all of it coexists with one another. And uh, how people want to look at their their powers and interpret their powers as gifts from God or otherwise uh, is is just like we're presenting the information. We're not taking sides. And I really, really like that. Even though I am not a religious person, I can mm-hmm. see and respect everything that was going on uh, in this book. Um, and I also like the fact that this wasn't just straight up Batman, right? The confessor is just not straight up Batman. He is all of the pulp mystery men wrapped together. I mean, there's the shadow in here. Just the way that he's drawn is the shadow. um, Yeah. When he's in his costume and everything. It's just, it's really, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the wonderful parts about Astro city is you can look at Brian Kinney as altar boy and say, well, he's Robin, but, He's not just Robin. He's also Spider-Man. He's also Bucky. He's he's, also... he's, he's hella Rick Jones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. All of, he's all of the teen sidekicks or young heroes or secondary characters. And in that way, he's archetypical by not being archetypical, you know? And there's an early scene in this, one of the most memorable scenes for me in the history of Astro City. Brian shows up and gets a job at a bar. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, you can work at the bar. It turns out the guy behind the bar used to be the Black Badge in the 1960s. And as the bar opens, you see these characters come in. And a lot of these characters are important later on in Astro City, but yeah. this is the first we see of them. And there's a scene where Rex of the first family, who's totally the thing, the but thing, not yeah. the thing, and right. also Namor, but not Namor, and archetypical in that way is arm wrestling with iron horse, the human locomotive. And there's this this minor discussion about how superhumans have been around for literally centuries and how silly are you to think it all started in 1938. But that whole sequence, I remember when this came out, there were maybe 10 issues of Astro city. And I think we had seen the first family once or twice by this, but Mm -hmm. this is our first time really spent with a lot of the characters. And Everybody who shows up in this is 
fully formed and fully rendered, and 20 years down the line, I can now tell you what these characters' deals are. But mm-hmm. I can also remember reading this book and going, I want to know more about Iron Horse, and I don't get it. Yeah, But I still yeah. want it. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's rich world building here. Oh, it's, God, yes. It's, it's really amazing that... Astro City seems to like is like what is the best thing about Astro City? And I, I would say consistently it's the stories, the individual stories, how they make you feel, how they make you relate to these characters. So it's it's just amazing that they're just they just live on this bed that is a fully complete rendered, like already perfect like superhero um, universe, Mm -hmm. which exists literally nowhere else. Yeah. Not, not to the size, not to the scale. Yeah. It's like, obviously it doesn't exist in the, in the uh, continuities that it's referencing because those are all over the place. And it's like, it's very difficult to, to look at anything else and say, you know, it's like, even if you look at something like invincible, it's like, the the world doesn't seem as big, even yeah. though um, it's had as many issues to to go about it. Not to put that book down; that book does amazing world building as well. Yeah. Um, but there's just something about Astro City where it's like, was Astro City? How was Astro City written before it was even written? How do you even <laughs> do that? Yeah, and there's there's a scene where there's a whole bunch of out of costume superheroes at a dinner party and something happens and alter boy, this is what before he's alter boy, he takes out a supervillain just with his swift kick and you see the faces of the heroes watching. And in retrospect, I can tell you who like six of the eight faces are. Yeah. But only because the stories that finally came out with them eventually came out. And we know that way, way back in issue six or seven, these characters were there. We know that that's actually Jack in the Box. We know that that's Quarrel. We know that that's Cleopatra. But we didn't at the time. Yeah. And going back and seeing the amount of work and these little quiet moments that I didn't catch when I read this book the first 150 times uh, that I've read it, and seeing them now, it's just like, my God, the amount of work that must have gone in to conceptualizing and making these stories that we don't even see have you ever because we're too busy enjoying the book have you ever talked to kurt matthew in the interviews that you've done for major spoilers have you ever talked to him about how much of a bible he had created for this series before he wrote it like how how much plotting and how much you know story was laid out and what the characters were going to be in their arcs were going to be before uh even page one was written I know that in certain places, when issue 100 came out and we were talking finally about the astronaut, Mm -hmm. who is the character for whom Astro City is named, he talked about having this astronaut story locked and loaded from before issue one came Uh, out in 1994. Okay. You know, and a lot of these characters you can tell were there from the very beginning. The Confessor, the Honor Guard, Winged Victory, the Gentleman, all of these characters have been there. Because they are archetypically representational right, right. of something. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, it's like there's lots of there's lots of ways to write that and mm-hmm. to I don't want to say cheat it without having everything together <laughs> because 
uh, writing is always cheating. You're always cheating. You're always fooling people. You're making people feel things with fictional characters. <laughs> right? <laughs> Trickster. So, How yeah, dare you? You're, just, you're always tricking people anyway. So, yeah, you have these archetypes. You write these archetypes. And then later on, you flesh them out and maybe new things come up. But nobody has to know that those things weren't there before. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and sure enough, I'm sure he had, you know, some stuff in his pocket. You know, it's like things, you know, it's like you, it's like the, the Silver Agent story was always going to happen because it's referenced before. Right. Um, it's like when, when the Punisher guy, like Ghost Punisher man finally shows up later you know that he was coming right because they, they mentioned him in this arc the blue yeah, knight yeah exactly so it's like you know that that's all somewhere in his pocket in the chamber sitting around somewhere and it's all gonna come up because he's kind of drawing from these things and all he has to do right now at this stage is allude to them even if they're not fully fleshed out but Man, if it doesn't always feel like everything's fully fleshed out. I know, right? Right. And that's what I liked about this this series. And and the fact that it goes from very street level very quick well, not very quickly. Uh, yeah, no, it does go very quickly from this street I mean, level crime abrupt, story. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. To all of a sudden the entire world is being invaded by aliens and now everybody <laughs> comes in and saves the day. And it's just yep. like, whoa, what the heck? And and again, it just kind of reinforces this idea that everybody has their place. And not by yes. saying they need to be put in their place, but everybody has their role and everybody has their place in this story, whether they are a street level hero all the way up to the the big cannons. And maybe what came first? Uh, I'm guessing Marvel's came before this, right? Yes. And that's and that's kind of maybe where a lot of this may have been being developed because you have to take a big sprawling story like you see in Marvel's and you have to tell it from this very tiny person's perspective and finding out where he belongs in this whole mess. Right. So but that, yeah. I think that's something that you do see in Astro city is there's always a point of view character. Mm -hmm. And what I really enjoy about the point of view character here and in multiple stories is sometimes you get uh, what Star Trek calls the cabbage head. You have to have somebody around to ask the stupid questions so that yeah. Dato or Spock or O'Brien can rattle off the important explanational dialogue. That's why Wesley Crusher existed. You needed somebody to say, but Captain, what do we do now? That's not how it usually works, is it? Right. And Brian Kinney, who is the altar boy, our primary character here, is actually really quick. He's really street smart. He's really together. He has planned how to get to Astro City and become a superhero. And he never feels like a dummy being dragged along by inertia, even when he's clearly out of his depth. And I think that that's the best part is you have this character who could be just a standard, you know, a uh, MacGuffin plot uh, motivator device, but he feels fully realized too. He feels like somebody smart where, you know, by the end, when we jump forward the five years in time and we see what he, what becomes of him, you feel like he deserves it. You feel like mm -hmm. it's something important. It's meaningful. Even though we've only been reading about this character for five issues, it really does feel like that big, beautiful moment that has, all of the Dick Grayson is no longer Robin. He's now Nightwing to it. And the fact that they pulled it off in that tiny amount of space mm -hmm. is just amazing. Yeah. 
Uh, so we've been uh, just gushing on this issue. What what didn't oh, yeah. you like about the issue? I, I mean, I something about this when I did read it originally didn't sit right with me. For some reason, I was just not a big fan and still I'm not a big fan of the confessor, even though this is a great story and he gets mm-hmm. a beginning, middle and end. Um, I I just was never a big fan of the confessor for whatever reason. Um, I, I think it's perfectly fair to not have the confessor like resonate with you yeah there's there's a lot of like i hate the way that um what's his name is it mph in this the yeah the speedster i hate his costume anytime he's on panel (laughs) i'm like uh and he's like oh he's like a super fast guy from detroit get it and i'm like that's fantastic why does he look like that you know so it's like there's there's always there is stuff about astro city that i don't like or that doesn't resonate with me um that i don't think it's that interest sometimes we just you know because uh, Astro City is all about the rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. So you go down this rabbit hole, and it's like I don't care about this character, but it's like, uh, sorry, sick. We're gonna spend six issues with this character so you can see their point of view, and by the end of it, you're like, gosh, Astro City sure is a wonderful place to visit. <laughs> that was boring. Yeah, thanks. You know? Thanks for visiting. Yep. Yeah. I I, my biggest complaint is um, there are times, and this is something that pops up every once in a while. Brent Anderson does really great, angry facial expressions. He does really great, you know, emoting his characters act really well, but sometimes the neutral expressions that aren't angry or mad or sad or scared are just kind of slack jawed, dull surprise. Yeah. So there are a few times in the issue or in these issues where I'm just riding along and somebody's got this look on his face and you just, in your mind, you hear goofy going, yeah, and that it's not, constant and it's certainly not something that's big enough to draw you out of the book regularly but it is something that does happen and it's you know it's something that happens in brent's art and i think we learn to live with that the same way we learn to live with you know alex ross does really beautiful design work but his color sense is crap i not, do not, not like hear it's alex. not not here it's well, not that's it's, a later thing that happens all he does is the covers but even if you look at those original covers there's a lot of oranges and blues and just really wacky stuff that I'm not totally into. And that's fine. You know, that's a, that's a personal preference on my part, but I feel like confession may be the most successful long form story in Astro city because it doesn't ever really drag. And I feel like if we, once we, if assuming we get to it, the steel Jack story, which is actually a little longer steel Jack story does falter a bit, a couple of times where it feels like, okay, okay, you've, I'm with you now, where are we going with this? But this book to me never really drags like that. And it does one thing that I think is remarkable in a book filled with masks. It makes a plastic off the shelf, uh, masquerade mask actually stand out as a plastic off the shelf masquerade mask. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. that that's got to be right there. That's that deserves some sort of award. Because in a universe I've worn that mask. I've worn it a hundred times. Uh you don't need to know why, but I do. And I love the fact that that sort of detail is there and in the issue, even though it's a world where, you know, super science and uh powers that come from literal gods exist. Wait a minute. 
Has anyone ever seen seen the Topeka stink pickle and Matthew in the same place <laughs> at the same time? Uh, nobody wants to think about the Topeka stink pickle. <laughs> but I think we all will say that we do recommend this issue to uh, to everyone who hasn't read it, correct? Is there anybody who would not recommend this issue? Uh, I definitely. say rush out into buying Frenzy for Astro City. All right. There you go. You can find a link in the show notes to pick this up. You can get that through uh, our Amazon link over at Majorspoilers.com. The best thing is you don't have to pay anything extra for this uh, great collection of the uh, Astro City Confession, but a little bit does come back our way. Yeah, stick it to that Jeff Bezos. Make him pay us money every time you make a purchase. Um, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Rodrigo. And thank you, dear listeners, for being part of the Major Spoilers uh, podcast and being part of the Major Spoilers experience this week. As always, we want to hear your feedback. So use the comments section at Major Spoilers to share your thoughts and reactions to this episode. Or even better, throw us an email at podcast at Majorspoilers.com. And don't forget, you can support this show and everything we do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Majorspoilers. We're going to be back next week. We're going to be talking about the haunts and the haints once again as we venture back into Harrow County. Why? Because we know that you love comics and we do too. We will talk with you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment LLC. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.